It was 50 years ago today, Monday, March 8th, 1971. The place was Madison Square Garden in New York, the home of big fights at the time. Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, for the first time, two undefeated heavyweights meet for the world championship. We'll talk about it when the Bob McCowan podcast begins after this message. 50 years ago, it happened. Ali Frazier won Monday, March 8th, 1971. Ali was undefeated, 31-0, 25 knockouts. Frazier was 26-0 with 23 knockouts. It was a fight that came to be known as the fight of the century, and uh, I <laughs> doubt that anybody gathered around these microphones would dispute that. Teddy Atlas, trainer, fight commentator, joins us. Great to see you again. It's been a while, Teddy. You look good. And uh, Paul Jones is with us as well. Um, you guys were both youngish at the time of this fight, both teenagers when uh, this fight took place. In general, what are your recollections, Teddy? I lost 100 point hours. <laughs> 14 years old I lost 120 I had no idea how I was going to pay it back and um, all I knew was I had to figure it out I could not believe that my man Muhammad Ali and that speaks to well it speaks obviously to his influence you know that he's got a 14 year old kid that's believing in him so much. There's no way Muhammad can lose. There's, there's no way he can't lose this fight. I'll just make $140. And um, I, uh, I learned a lesson. I learned a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and I came uh, up, like Ali got off the floor, I came up with the 120. That was almost, <laughs> as, hard. It was almost as hard as what Muhammad had to do. <laughs> oh, Bobcat, I was, a, I was 12, going to be 13. And I remember uh, as a young black kid how important the fight was in our community because there was a division between, between Joe and, and uh, Muhammad, who had recently changed his name and wouldn't go into the army and all of that. And I remember being at home with my brother, who is you know, now Mr. ESPN, was, he was nine years old. And we sat at the kitchen table while my dad and his cronies tooted off to the Vaughn Theater to watch mm -hmm. the fight in closed circuit. And my mom, my brother, and I sat at the kitchen table. We were allowed to stay up in our pajamas, listening for, as my brother called it, the Up One Report, which is really the UPI reports on the round-by-round, round, where they said, you know, first round ends, uh, Ali and Fraser meet in the middle. Fraser hits him to the body. Ali goes back to the road. You get a 20-second little summation. Yep. And they said, end of round one, um, UPI scores the round for Fraser. And I was writing them down. And that's what I remember. And, and Teddy, I was like you. I just, I just could not believe anybody could beat Muhammad. I, I was in that same boat. John Shannon, you know, what are the, your the, recollections? I, I tell you what, it, it, it was, to me, it was bigger than a fight. And, and Paul touched on it. This was, this was re a return of someone who, uh, a conscientious objector, someone who had made a political and a religious stand about the Vietnam War, someone who was so influential that um, this was not just a fight. 
this was a social political event. Um, and, uh, I was, I was, I was in high school. I was listening on the radio. I, I wasn't in Paul's kitchen, but I was in my own, uh, the closest closed circuit to my house was 250 miles away. Wow. Uh, so, so we, uh, so we had no choice in a very small town and we were also, we were right on the Canada U S border. So we were very cognizant of the Vietnam war. Uh, we had a ton of draft dodgers. Uh, we were a very liberal leading town. Um, so th the town was really divided between uh, the fight and, you know, and, and the guy who didn't want to go to war. Uh, and uh, it, it became a huge discussion around our kitchen table uh, on a nightly basis leading up to the Monday. And by the way, the fact that it was a Monday yes. also spoke to the event being so special. This was not a Saturday. This was not even a Sunday, but this was a Monday. This is, this is before Monday night football was invented. Uh, th this was something that was so special on a school night <laughs> that uh, it, it became so important to everyone. It's intriguing, guys, that the question of race comes up in a, a confrontation between two black fighters. And yet race was really an issue in this fight. Um, Ali was... Um, we all know what his personality was like. We all know what his um, agendas were up until that point. And, and if, you, if you were white and were racist at all, you hated Muhammad Ali and therefore adopted uh, Joe Frazier as the guy that you were rooting for. It's, mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure, Teddy, that we've seen a fight quite like this from that perspective. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, Joe Frazier said it best. You know, he was hurt. He was really hurt by the people, by everybody, by the black community, by just by people in general. When he once said, you know, I don't understand. They're treating me like I'm not black. And he pointed to his skin color. He said, I'm darker than Muhammad. I'm, I'm, I'm darker than he is. And they're treating me as though I'm not a black man. And I was less privileged than him. I grew up in South Carolina, you know, as a sharecropper, uh, you know, working out in the fields, uh, you know, very difficult, difficult, difficult work uh, for very little money. So Joe Frazier was really, you know, cut to his core by not understanding how he could be dismissed as a black man. So, yeah, it cut, it cut a lot of ways uh, that went way beyond what usually hurts, which is inside that squared circle. Uh, mm. There's a lot of hurt outside. Uh, there's yeah. a lot of healing that needed to take place and adjusting uh, outside that ring. That this ring was sort of a, this fight, this event, as you guys touched on, was sort of a microcosm of all that. It was, it was a center point, uh, mm -hmm. a nuclear point. Yeah. All of that. For, and I got to say one thing. It also was kind of like what Flood in baseball and Catfish Hunter later did in free agency. It was, there is no commission in boxing, no national commission. So there's no official free agency. But this was about free agency too. Fighters had never made this kind of money. <laughs> they had never 
you know, it's just like the baseball owners. They made all the money. And then all of a sudden, the baseball players started making money uh, on, on a more fair level. Well, the same thing with the boxers. The promoters made all the money. And now, $5 million purse to split. Wow. I mean, like, it was mind-boggling. Like, uh, it, nobody ever heard of that. And it opened the doors. It really did. It opened the doors for future purses to be larger. For Again, for free agency, if you will, in boxing. And the story I got to tell you, my friend, Mickey Duff, he's one of the greatest promoters of all time from London. Uh, they ran everything in London. And he's not with us anymore. But at the time, him and his partner, Jarvis Astaire, he owned Wembley Stadium. That's all you need to know. So the two of them, with his other partners, they were thinking about promoting a fight. It was open. It was open to bidding. And when it got up to $5 million, they had to make a decision. He told me the story himself. He said, Teddy, we had to make a decision. Now, these are guys that are embedded into boxing. Nobody knows boxing better. It's not like they were na naive guys. They, they looked at the numbers, and they didn't make sense. They said at the end of the day, they, had, they went back and forth, and finally, they said, we got to pass. We got to, you sure? Yeah, we got to pass. It's too much. It's too much. And Mickey Duff, even though he's got an Irish name, you guys are boxing guys, you probably know this, he was Jewish. So he was, his real last name was Prager. So he was over after this negotiation, before the fight, he was over in Israel. And he was at, excuse me if I pronounce it wrong, but he had a kibbutz. Uh, and, and he was near the water there. And he's, he's over there in Israel at his kibbutz near the ocean. And he hears these two Hasidics can you imagine this? Talking about this fight. Soon as he heard it, he ran to the phone booth. He called him, he called up London. He called Jarvis and said, Jarvis, we made a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. Well, wow. And, and from an economic perspective, here's some numbers. Um, there were two and a half million tickets sold on the pay-per-view. Um, the fight generated $45 million in revenue. Uh, which is the equivalent of, a, of over 300 million today. And in Britain, to your point, Teddy, 27.5 million viewers watched the fight on television there. That, is, that was half the population mm -hmm. of Britain. 50% wow. of the population wow. watched this fight. Just to put it in perspective for those that are too young to remember this, how big this event was. You know, Bobcat, uh, Teddy talks about, um, you know, the, the racial side of things. And as a kid sitting on my parents' living room floor, you know, John talked about how in his town they were well aware. Well, we were well aware of the civil rights movement. And, and as a kid sitting watching that, I, I, I think what happened was Muhammad, when he, he changed his name and he stood up and he said all these things, he was speaking for a lot of the black community that didn't have a voice. They were, he was their well, champion, so to speak, in, 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 in a number of ways. And I don't know if people disliked Joe as much as they felt that it's the old silence is complicit and he didn't speak up as much. And I, I, I that was my perspective as, as a kid back then, like, well, he's black. Too. I was like you, Teddy. He's black too. What? What's? What, what? Why are you? Why are you saying he's the white people's champion? And why are you? And it was because 
maybe the perception was that Joe wasn't speaking up enough and his personality, you know, as we know, maybe didn't lend itself to that. He was, as Teddy said, a hardworking blue collar guy. And he was, he just kind of kept his mouth quiet and did his job at the time because there was maybe a fear of reprisal or retribution if you spoke up too much. So he just, just, I would tell you, Paul, that he played by the rules. Yes. You know, and, and, and what happened was, uh, let's face it, Ali, to his credit, wrote his own rules. Yes. And he spoke up, John. And that was the thing. And that, well, that was, that was, that's part of the rules he created. Right. That was new for some black people. They wanted to speak up. They saw injustice, but he was the first one, you know, on that scale and that uh, global perspective to mm-hmm. say to America, I'm not doing this. And, and it, for him, it had been brewing for a long time. We know what he did with his medal when he came back from the Olympics and it had been brewing for a long time and it just, he just let it out. Uh, with uh, Teddy Atlas and Paul Jones, as we reflect on the 50th anniversary today of the Ali Frazier fight, the first Ali Frazier fight. Uh, Joe Frazier had uh, been fighting pretty consistently leading up to uh, this confrontation. Ali had had a couple of fights after his forced retirement from the uh, sport. Teddy, as a trainer, I'm intrigued by your response to this question. Did Ali fight Frazier too soon? Did he, should he have had one, two more tune-up fights, for lack of a better term? Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, but first of all, it was pretty incredible what he did. Three and a half years old, off, and he comes back and he fights as tune-ups. He fights Oscar Bonafina and Jerry Quarry. I mean, if you put that to today's standards, those are top guys. Those are a tune-up. I mean, these are guys that are fighting for titles. These are these are top guys. These are top contenders. And it was part of the metamorphosis of Ali, the change of Ali, too, in different ways, and uh, coming out the way he did socially and everything, but also what he was doing. But also physically, you never saw, and technically, you never saw the same. And my, my mentor, the great... Customato once said before the enforced layoff, the only time you touched hands, you touched Ali, was when the referee forced you to touch gloves before the fight. Mm. And, you know, I know Henry Cooper touched him and all the, you know, Doug Jones on the way up. But once he got to that place, it was pretty damn hard to touch him. And he was a different guy now. He had to be a different guy now. And he was never known as a puncher. Well, now he had to sit down, he had to fight more. He dropped Oscar Bonafina. Joe Frazier fought him, fought him twice. He didn't drop him. Joe Frazier, great puncher. He didn't, and he's known as a great puncher. But he didn't drop him. But Ali dropped Bonavena and knocked out, stopped Bonavena. So it, it's very interesting. So there was a there was a new Ali now, and he had to be. He had no choice. But he reinvented himself, kind of like George Foreman did years later, you know, and reinvented himself. But George did it more on the person scale, the personality scale, um, than he really did so much in the ring. But what, what was really interesting was that he comes back and he has these two fights in a short period of time. And then he goes into that fight. And I think a lot of people get the misnomer 
that it was a one-sided fight. Oh, my God, it was a brutal, close, tough fight. I mean, Frazier separated himself in a late, in a, at the end with the left hook that dropped mm -hmm. Allen. He separated mm -hmm. and, you know, put the fight away for himself. But that was a, that was a difficult fight for both men and very difficult for Frazier. He was in the hospital after that fight. A lot of people forget. He, he had to actually go and spend some time in the hospital. He took a lot of punishment. Ali, having said that he needed more time to your question, I'm going to turn around. I don't care if it sounds conflictive. But he was great. <laughs> he was great that night as a new Ali in a new form. Yeah. You know, he, he was like the body snatches that come down from the planet and they take <laughs> over someone else's body. He took over a new body and he had to be a new person and he fought toe-to-toe -to -toe with Joe Frazier and he put a beating on Joe Frazier to the point that he did. And of course, Joe Frazier put a beating on him. Hey, just, Teddy, just for clarity, I, I want to ask this, this question to Teddy. Sorry, Paul. Yeah. But but to, to your point, Teddy, you know, we saw Ali from the early 60s through 67 dance, move, not get hit. Is it your contention then that Ali in 1971 wasn't capable of dancing? Yeah. Um, or did it or did he do it strategically? That's a did very good, smart question. It really is. No wonder you get uh, big jobs over there. Uh, it, it is the right question. It really is. He, I believe Ali was very instinctual, very special. And even more than, you know, as, as bright as he was, as articulate as he was, he was very instinctual. And his instincts told him that he had to fight this fight. If he had more time, Maybe he could have moved more, but he was a bigger man now. He was a different right. man. It was, there was, as I said, there was a transformation. It was a metamorphosis that took place. So his instincts told him, you got to fight fire with fire. This man, this man going to come to you. This man's not going to respect you. This man's going to try to hurt you. You got to try to hurt him. And Teddy, I... The whole thing I, is psychology. So... And I want to ask you about the judging based on that. Uh, one judge had it 11-4. Arthur Mercanti had it 8-7-1 even for Fraser. And he's in the ring. One judge had it 11-4. And I have two questions about the judging based on what Bob asked you and what you said. Do you think the judges were like, wait a minute, we've never seen him hit. He's getting hit. And did that skew their perspective? And, and secondly, what all the, the background stuff that we talked about with the, the cultural and racial things, how much did that influence? Because we had no CompuBox. We had no, we didn't have all those stats. How much did those two things kind of influence what the judges saw, Ted? A lot, I believe. It's only my opinion. Yeah. But to your question, again, a good question. Um, and, you know, if you're going to dissect something, you have to, you have to have the right tools to dissect it. You have to go to the right places. And you go into the right places to try to figure it out. I, I feel that, yeah, I feel some people didn't like him. You know, 
I don't have to use the word race, but that, that kind of takes care of itself. But mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. But maybe it's because he didn't go in the army. Let's be fair here. Mm -hmm. It's just purely that. Purely that. A lot of a lot of veterans, a lot of people from those days that they lost their kids that, that went over into the Vietnam War. You know what? They they didn't feel too good about it. It had nothing to do with race when it came to them. It came to, <laughs> I know I'm gonna say it the way, but I'm gonna say it this way. It was black and white. And it, and, it, and it wasn't race. It was just, it was, he didn't go. My kid had to go. My kid never came home. So that was part of it. Um, and then, you're right. They never saw Ali hit. So if Ali's hitting, being hit, he must be getting beat. If Ali's getting hit, if you're not falling on the floor trying to miss him, uh, trying to hit him and you're missing him, if you're not frustrated, if you're not behind in that kind of way, in that kind of battle, then you must be winning. You're hitting the guy, you're winning. You're not looking to see, hey, yeah, but he's hitting the guy back. You're missing that part, that part right. of the equation. I think that's that's a good point by um, by Paul, that, yeah, I think a lot of, we, if we stay away from the social part of it and the likes and not likes, I think mm. in the ring, these judges were not equipped for this kind of night to to – to see Ali not the way that they saw him last. Right. Him getting hit. And in their mind, like, oh, he's losing. How come? What are you talking about? You see the shots he's getting hit with? Good. But did you see what he's hitting at Fraser with? Did you see the bumps that are starting to come on Fraser's head? Oh, no, I didn't see that. Well, <laughs> how, how, much bigger, how much bigger was he, though? Guys, how much bigger was he? Uh, than when he, uh, than the three and a half years early. Was he 20, 25 pounds heavier? Allie? Yeah. No, Allie was maybe 10 pounds heavier than his normal okay. fight weight. He was 215 for the fight. And Teddy, you'll recall, 205 was sort of where Allie liked to fight at in the, yeah. in, the uh, in the 60s. Yeah, so he was a little bigger. Heavyweight coming up, you know, uh, all the way from Marciano, to, you know, Patterson, they started getting a little bigger, you know, and, and Joe, Joe Lewis, all of them, they, they eventually got up to 200. Joe Lewis, 205, 200. And then Ali came along, like you said, uh, and then eventually grew into a, to a larger size. Uh, I want to point to, you know, the issue of how close this fight actually was and the question of, of how these officials viewed this fight. And here's, here's something I, I, I found out that I think is extremely intriguing. As a general rule, and Teddy will attest to this, when you look at a scorecard, yeah, there are variables in, in, in well, from three judges in, in, in any round and in any fight. But the last three rounds of this fight, Arthur Mercanti, the referee, gave all three of the uh, rounds, 13, 14, and 15, to Frazier. Bill Recht gave Frazier two of the three. And Artie Idella gave Ali two of the three. That demonstrates exactly how difficult it was yeah. to understand what was happening in the ring and who actually was the better fighter. And yes, it was Foreman or Foreman Frazier who landed big hooks quite mm -hmm. consistently from about the end of the third round on. But it was Ali with the jabs and, and peppering him. It didn't look like those punches had a whole lot of force to them. But it raises the issue. How do you judge? And each judge judges differently. Teddy, I'm sure you've been at ringside and in the ring for numerous fights 
where you disagreed with the way the officials, the, the, the referees, the judges called a fight. As you look back on this fight, did they get it wrong or did they get it right? No, they got it wrong just in the way of the disparity of the scores, the size of the scores. They got it wrong. I'm not saying they didn't get the winner right. At the end of the day, I can go with Frazier winning the fight um, down the stretch and, you know, scoring the knockdown and landing maybe the more consequent, or maybe not even maybe, landing the more consequential punches. You know, I'll, I'll go with the final verdict, but the size of the scores are not proper. Uh, they were they were out of whack. They were wrong. And I think, again, I don't think they were equipped to handle this fight. I don't know if anybody was. You know, mm. I, I don't know, but I don't know if they were. And they were more important than anybody because they were the ones who were going to tell you who won at the end of the day. So I, I feel that Boxing scoring is always too subjective. It's there's supposed to be a stern criterion in finding the winner. And really what it's supposed to be, it's separated from amateurs. Amateur who who draws the most punches, you know, and who lands the most, it doesn't matter. Jab is the same as a knockdown. But in professional boxing, where you want to put pennies in the seats. The criterion is supposed to be very clear. Who lands the most effective, clean punches? Boom. And on that, you can go with Frazier. I think what's missed a little bit is, again, the mentality going in is, guy's not a puncher, he's a feather duster. You know what? He wasn't a feather duster. Look at the face of Joe Frazier after that fight. Mm -hmm. Look at where he went. He didn't go back to his hotel. As I said, he went to the hospital. He was landing some big right hands. You look at that fight. He was land. He being Ali, of course, was landing big right hands and left hooks, left hooks on the edge where Frazier was coming. Boom! He would land a counter, as we call it now, or as they call it now, check hooks. But he was landing all of that, and those are they're consequential punches, and. The consequences, again, was there by Frazier's health after the fight. So um, I, I, I thought it was a really close fight, a really close fight. And I know it's crazy, crazy, but it could have been a draw. Mm. <laughs> I, know, I know that people are going to say, what? What did he just say? But yeah, but how dare, how could that? I don't think that the powers that be, if you will, <laughs> would allow a draw to have happened, not... Not on that night. Not with everything was in the balance. Uh, It was um, an extraordinary night. And we've come to understand that when you have these rare occurrences of a fight of this magnitude, um, that those in attendance are uh, rather unique. It isn't just fight people. We'll take a quick break and we'll uh, go through some of the people that were there that night. Uh, Ali Frazier, 50 years later, back after this message. We're with Paul Jones and Teddy Atlas, John Shannon, Bob McCowan on the uh, podcast. 50 years after Ali Frazier, it was March the 8th, 1971 at Madison Square Garden, over 20,000 people in attendance. Top ticket price was 150 bucks, which is the equivalent of about a thousand today. 
And we talked earlier about how much money this thing generated. But there actually were people who couldn't get tickets to this fight. The story is, I don't know, Teddy, whether you know this, but it's alleged that Frank Sinatra himself couldn't get a ticket to the fight. And so he got a job taking photographs for Life magazine just to be able to get into the ring. Do you know if that's true? I don't know if it's true. I was wondering why he wanted to be a photographer, though. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there was Frank Sinatra in the, you know, at the peak of his career uh, taking pictures for Life magazine. Leroy Neiman was there, and he was painting during the fight mm -hmm. a, a, uh, um, uh, a painting of, uh, of the boxers. On the broadcast, no less than Burt Lancaster... Ha 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 was uh, the the one of the commentators on the uh, on the cable broadcast. Don Dunphy was the the referee in the ring, who I would think at that point was the preeminent uh, referee of his time. Certainly the best known, I would I would suggest. Well, or uh, a broadcaster. Sorry, I said referee broadcaster of his time. Right. And Arthur McCanty was the uh, was the referee inside there. Well, Don Dunphy was the voice of boxing at Madison Square Garden for sure, right, Teddy? Yeah, Don Dunphy was, and he was a one-man show. He was a special guy, and uh, he did all the fights, you know, all the consequential fights, all the big fights. You know, you just mentioned, I want to just jump in real quick. Yeah. You mentioned Arthur McCanty, the great late Arthur McCanty. He was a great ref, and, um, you know, it's very interesting. He was the only score. They don't do it anymore where the referee scores. Right. He, that was one of the last times. He was the, obviously, the other two scores were from guys sitting at ringside. He was in the ring, in the action. Isn't it interesting that he's the only guy who had it close? Yeah. Better yeah. than that. Better than that, Teddy. Mercanti had Ali ahead 6-5-1 after 12 rounds. Isn't that really, doesn't that tell you something? Really, doesn't that speak a little bit? It sure know, does. To the argument we're making <laughs> that mm. it's a lot closer fight than, than they had it, or some of them had it. I mean, here's the guy who's there. He hears the punches. He sees the punch. He feels the punches. He knows. He knows what's landing. He knows the damage that's being done. He sees the right hands that are making Joe Frazier's legs quiver a little bit. And listen, Joe Frazier's legs quivered. He didn't hey. go, but his legs quivered. Hey, Teddy, in the ninth round, and, and again, I, I guess I have a little advantage. My dad, uh, you know, never again, uh, long gone, but my dad was a high school boxing champion in Jamaica. So he wanted us in the fight game too. And I, I, I took one to the head during a sparring session. I took off the head. I said, that's it. I'm done. But in the ninth round, Fraser was hit so hard he was just coming forward out of habit because he was walking right into them. And Ali stood flat-footed and, 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 and let him have it right in the middle of the ring. And anybody else goes down. Like you said, the way he stopped Bonavina. I mean, Corey, he stopped on a TKO with the cut. But And, and again, I, we're making this case. I thought Fraser was ready to go down in the ninth round. And he was, he was saved at the end of the round by the bell. If there's another 30 seconds in that round, he stops coming forward, and I think he goes down. So I agree with you with the whole Mercanti thing, and, and I'm, I keep replaying this fight, and I, I watched it again yesterday on, on TV, and I, I just think it was 
it was much closer. I guess I can live with Joe winning, but I think it was much closer than one judge who had it 11 4. I like you to be a judge. I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> they drive me crazy, and it hasn't stopped. <laughs> you know, one of the legendary stories was that uh, the relationship between Fraser and Ali was never good, even particularly after the fight. Is that true? You know what? You guys remember some of those commercials and stuff leading up to the fight? You know, <laughs> Nepal, they were pretty good. Nepal booth and stuff. I can tell you from people that were around, you know, guys that the, that I trust, obviously, their stories because they were there. Um, Frazier helped Ali out a little bit. He, uh, you know, Ali was having trouble. You know, he was going, he was speaking at schools, but he was having some financial problems, obviously. And from what I understand, very quietly, Frazier may have given him a little assistance. Mm -hmm. And, um, and mm -hmm. And they talked, you know, they talked, you know, with all the stuff they had to do to promote the fight, obviously, and the stuff, some of the ugly stuff that came and kind of progressed um, as the, as it went on to the three fights. But early on at that point, they talked and they talked about making this fight and about making money and about, you know, hanging in there. You know, that's, that's pretty human. You know, a guy like Joe Frazier, hang in there. We're going to, you know, uh, and helping him out in the way that I was told that he helped him out in some kind of some kind of financial way quietly again and again for to help him out a little bit as far as you would never think it who would have thought to the point we were making that nobody thought that Fraser was as smart as Ali that he could articulate himself the way that Ali did and he, and he didn't he didn't do that that wasn't his personality but he was smart enough to help make this fight happen. He was smart enough to be able to give some psychology. And again, the king of psychology was Ali, but he was able to help Ali psychologically by saying, hang in there. We'll, we'll get this mm. done. Mm. That, that's, that's pretty amazing. Well, there is a story too, guys. I don't know how many of you have uh, seen it, and I don't know whether it's, it's true or not, but we know that Frazier went to the hospital. Ali apparently went for 10 minutes to the hospital, then left. Frazier was in the hospital for several weeks and there was a story that Ali was with some of his band and there was a phone call from somebody saying that Joe Frazier was on the verge of death and Ali overheard this being told to one of his entourage and the story is that he fell to his knees in his room and said, oh God, oh God, no. Uh, he was terrified that Joe was not going to make it. And I think that's a reflection. If true, it's a reflection of the kind of maybe hidden respect that Ali mm -hmm. had for Joe Frazier. Yeah. Teddy, did you hear that story? Yeah, I did. I heard a version of it. But um, I, the version I heard, the things that were the same was that Frazier might die, as you said, that it was, it was in serious shape, uh, bad shape, and that Ali was... Uh, you know, Ali was praying that he would be okay. And, you know, it, it goes to show you, you use the word respect rightfully. When two men go through a journey, and that's a journey, believe me, 15 rounds of that, when they go through a, a journey where they put light on dark places, and that's the way I put it, 
they put light on dark places, places that they'd never been before. Neither one of them had ever been to these places. And most of the people, maybe all of the people watching, had never been to those places. They had never dreamed that you could go to those places. They taught people something that night. Fighters do that. They do it. I'm not saying that they do it knowing that they're going to do that, but they do it with their actions, that they teach us that you can go to further places than you think you can go if you're willing to do that. And when you do that, well, the people who are affected that watch it. They're affected in their own private ways. They are. But the people that do it are affected. And they're affected in the way that there's a special bonding, brotherhood, connection, respect, admiration for that man because you know where other people can only venture to think they know. You know where you went. You know what it was. And you love that person. I think there was mm-hmm. a love for the two. They had a love. I know that I get it with everything they went, but I mm-hmm. think they love. And very similar to years later with Mickey Ward and Arturo Gatti, mm-hmm. where <laughs> they, they went to some rough places that night in that first fight. And they both wound up in the hospital. And lo and behold, they, they open up the curtain and they're right next to each other on gurneys. And, and they're asking each other, are you okay? Are you all right? Because they know where they went. Right. What a, it, was, um, it was an extraordinary night. It was uh, the first of its kind. There have been many nights since then, I suppose, in terms of um, of audience and um, you know the arrival of um, pay-per-view and cable television and um, we went through many more of those nights. I know Teddy, you were involved in in some of them too. Uh, but there was there was nothing quite, I don't think, like um, March the eighth, nineteen seventy-one. It was um, it was a revelation for anybody who was a sports fan and a boxing fan, and you didn't have to be a boxing fan in order to be interested in that, and that. That was perhaps the most intriguing thing mm-hmm. that came from um, that night. Uh, Teddy, we want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, you've always been good for us, uh, good to us, and we uh, we greatly appreciate it. Uh, Jonesy, good to see you again as always. We'll see you again soon, and uh, Mr. Shannon, we'll catch you later on in the week on the podcast. Yes, sir. That'll do it for us. Thank you for watching and listening. See you next time.